Thank you for joining us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly tribal animals. And when we live in small enough communities in which we know each person by name or at minimum by face, we are collaborative enough to sustain everyone with the bare essentials of nutritious food, warm shelter, health care, and education provided with dignity, respect, kindness, and love. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, our guests will be Dr. David Geisinger and Dr. Howard Levine. Today, they will become founding members of the Psychedelic Elder Confessors. Stay tuned for this fascinating interview, during which you will hear about two doctors' decades-long experimentation with psychedelic medicines. You may call or text during the program at any time. Just Type in 650-TALLY-HO. That's 650-TALLY-HO. But first, here's some news and notes in psychology and medicine. I opine that hypocrisy, the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform, is a national security issue and should be treated as such. When leadership is hypocritical, it undermines the moral fabric of our society. Leadership in our country, the country we love and would like to be proud of, is rife with hypocrisy. How many politicians have we watched railing against homosexuality only to be caught in public toilets soliciting sexual favors from young men? How many evangelists have we heard screaming hellfire and brimstone only to be caught with prostitutes and drugs or watching their wives having sex with other men? How many leaders speak of the plight of the poor only to be living in palatial homes? How often do we call ourselves a free country while black people risk their lives every time they leave their homes? What have we become when we decry torture and yet torture people under the carefully sanitized name of enhanced interrogation. Our foreign policy makes claim to morality, yet acts Machiavellian as we invade and plunder, be it Mexico, the Philippines, Cuba, or Iraq. How many congressmen have passed draconian marijuana laws, thereby ruining the lives of young black men, while they themselves show up in the hallowed halls of government besotted by the demon rum? How many people in the United States have experimented with drugs that have been made illegal, not because of their danger, but because the laws are used as weapons against people of color, be they yellow, 
brown or black, as well as people of dissenting opinions. Listen now to the words of John Ehrlichman, advisor to President Nixon, and I quote, We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or blacks, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. In addition to playing this policy for political gain, the Nixon tapes revealed that President Nixon was paranoid, not only about what he perceived as dope-pushing commies, but he was also suspect of Jewish psychiatrists. Nixon told his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, you know, it's a funny thing. Every one of the bastards that are out for legalizing marijuana is Jewish. What the Christ is the matter with the Jews, Bob? What is the matter with them? I suppose it's because most of them are psychiatrists. <laughs> it, would be, it would be Woody Allen laughable were it not true and so utterly dangerous for the soul of our country. Today, we have with us two of our country's distinguished psychotherapists, President Nixon notoriously defamed. Dr. Howard Levine and Dr. David Geisinger are here today. They're going to come out from the cloak of secrecy that our government has forced them to live behind and tell the story of their decades-long personal experimentation with psychedelic and psychoactive medicines. Dr. David Geisinger is the 82-year-old author of Kicking It, The New Way to Stop Smoking, and Going the Distance, Finding and Keeping Lifelong Love written with his wife, life partner, Dr. Lonnie Barback. David is also a visual artist who has had one-man shows of his work. Dr. Howard Levine, 85-year-old former commander and medical officer in the U.S. Navy, is founder of Diabasis House and a faculty member of the C.G. Young Institute of San Francisco and the Department of Psychiatry at the uh, University of California, San Francisco Medical School. Howard is also a pianist who is known for practicing 20 hours per week. <laughs> welcome, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Howard and David. I hear Howard laughing in the background. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Nice, nice to, to see here. you this morning. Nice to see you this morning. Good to see you too, Howard. So... We're going to begin by telling them what we're going to tell them. Then we're going to tell them, and then we're going to tell them what we told them. So to begin with, I'd like an overview from each of you, sort of an overview as you think about it on your decades of experimentation with psychedelic medicine. Who would like to go first? Well, I... Uh... I was a young man in Brooklyn, New York, uh, coming out of uh, a rather uh, dark and troubled early environment. 
and feeling quite liberated as I made my way to Greenwich Village in the early and mid-50s. And uh, my first uh, experience with uh, any uh, mind-altering chemical was with uh, marijuana, which uh, was occasionally available to people like me at the uh, tender young age of uh, 19, I believe, uh, in Greenwich Village. Uh, and, uh, and the experience uh, that I first had was simply uh, a delightful, convivial, pro-social laugh-a-thon in which myself and a number of my friends got together and clandestinely with great wariness because at the time marijuana, as you know, was illegal and people were being sent to jail for even having a seed in their pocket, much less a joint. What year was that, David? I think it was about 1958. Thank you. Thereabouts. Mm-hmm. So it was essentially um, being used, uh, passed around as a kind of uh, um, activator of uh, soci- sociality at parties, laughathons. It was uh, a source of uh, of laughter playful jokes, warmth, conviviality, delight. And aside from the paranoia that was induced because of the the marijuana laws at the time, uh, nobody had a bad time with it. Nobody uh, that I knew uh, um, overdosed to the point of feeling ill or sick uh, in any way. And uh, when the day, uh, the next day came, there was no consequence, no hangover. And we had simply had um, a light spirited time. Uh, So everybody who was using it in that uh, rather modest way was inclined from time to time when people got together and it was available uh, to use it and to have um, a pleasant, convivial uh, evening with no dark consequences whatsoever. That was my first use. That was your first use of a psychedelic substance. Can you uh, remember enough uh, at the time to compare that first uh, use of marijuana in the 90s, we're going back over 60 years now. Over 60 uh, years. Over yeah. 60 years we're going back. Can you remember enough about your first experience with alcohol uh, to describe that and perhaps compare the two? Yes, and uh, I, I can uh, do that. And I think it's an important uh, comparison uh, because um as most young people, uh, occasionally I experienced an experimental moment with uh, alcohol, uh, 
beer or spirits of some sort. And uh, I never uh, felt uh, well while doing it, except for the brief moment that I was beginning to ingest it. Pretty soon, headache followed, dizziness, nausea, diarrhea, illness of one form or another, uh, torpor, slurring of words, disequilibrium, all kinds of negative experiences were attached to alcohol ingestion, none of which uh, accompanied my modest uh, marijuana use. Now, I've been around people uh, who uh, ingested too much marijuana at one given time or another, or too potent a dose in some way or another, and who also were uh, moved into a kind of uh, relaxed torpor. But it usually was not accompanied by all of the other symptomatology that I just described uh, attached to alcohol. Okay, so that was your first uh, experience with a psychedelic or or relatively psychedelic substance uh, that we refer to as marijuana, uh, known chemically as tetrahydrocannabinol, THC. Uh, Howard, we're going to move over to you, and what can you remember about your first experience with some uh, mind-altering psychedelic substance? Uh, Yes, I was, um, let's see, I was, I think, at at that point the chief resident in psychiatry at the University of California Um, and just about uh, maybe I was just about to enter the faculty I want to say this was um, 1961 I'm sorry I I want to skip ahead maybe it was 1963 Uh, if you remember there was a revolution going on down the hill from the uh, heights of the University of California the hippies had taken over Golden Gate Park, and there was a human being. Uh, Timothy Leary was there. Uh, uh, Richard Alpert was there. Um, I think some of the motorcycle gangs were there as well. It was a huge crowd of people. And that was the first time I'd ever tried the marijuana in this large group. And just had a, just felt like I was having a very nice time. I did not like alcohol. I don't ever, I've never liked really alcohol. Uh, in excess, I will have a drink, but I've never liked the feeling in my body when I drink too much. I've never had that kind of feeling with marijuana. Let's see, I I can't remember the dates, but a few years later, I had my, uh, I was chief resident at the time, I had my first uh, LSD uh, experience. Uh, A younger resident invited me to his house, uh, promised me that I'd be okay, uh, I was uh, in a house overlooking uh, the ocean at Muir Beach, which is just north of San Francisco. And um, I was guided by this young man who was a physician and a resident through one of the most extraordinary um, experiences I've ever had in my life. And I think that experience, more than the marijuana, uh, really opened my eyes to things that I had not seen before. I was born and raised in New York City. And I really hadn't appreciated nature until that first uh, psychedelic experience when I actually fell in love with nature as it was. There was another side to that trip is, is the tremendous sadness that came over me because of what was going on in Vietnam at the time. 
and the fact that people were not respecting this um, treasure of a moment in time that we were alive and able to look at things. In other words, I, or whatever we consist of, um, leptons, quarks, etc., had been floating through a space from time immemorial. And suddenly I realized I was here for a brief moment to be able to see what creation was about. And I was very moved by that and very saddened by the fact that people were not respecting life. So I remember crying very deeply. And my oldest daughter, who was a little child, uh, came to visit me that afternoon. And she, maybe she was three. And she actually, I think she's listening to this. She took me by the hand and led me to a place outside of the fence in the house uh, where, I, where I was. And it was a place that she knew. And she wanted to show me the flowers that she had secretly been leaving our house to go play with. Was flowers. This was in Tiburon at the time. Um, anyway, we had a wonderful connection. She is a child. Me is an adult. And the other thing of that first experience was I had to make a decision whether I wanted to live or not. Uh, because I, I had, she, my daughter took me, this little girl, took me out to the very tip of Muir Overlook. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a, above the cliffs, above the ocean. And I stood there thinking, do I want to live or do I want to die? And I realized how, what a treasure life was, which is what I'm trying actually to say about what was also making me sad because people were not uh, treasuring life the way I suddenly was experiencing it at that time. Anyway, that was my first experience. I could say it was kind of a spiritual experience, but it didn't have to do with a deity although there were moments on it that I felt um, that I saw uh, something that looked like Jesus Christ who came down and smiled at me. And I said, hey, wait a second, I'm a Jewish psychiatrist. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not well, ready to- but he was a Jewish rabbi, so what That's was your true. problem? Yeah, right. <laughs> at the moment that... You were alive then, um, anyway, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience, and that happened, you know, like so long ago, and still is vivid in my mind. Since then, do you want, you want me to go on? No, not yet, that? not yet. Thank you, Howard. So, so you you had the uh, the marijuana experience first, then as chief resident at what hospital were you chief resident at? University of California. Yeah, chief resident at University of California Medical School. In one the of department the, of psychiatry. In the department of psychiatry, uh, one of the residents uh, brought introduced you to LSD, and then you had this uh, quite uh, uh, would you say a life changing experience, yes. or would you say a a life changing experience? Life changing, I'd say a life changing experience. I, I was very a nuts and bolts kind of guy. I still am probably, but this opened me up to another dimension of being. Uh, I, I want to use the word, I, the word spiritual is so um, misused these days, but I would say it was like a spiritual experience where the boundaries between me and nature and the world and the people I loved uh, all disappeared. So it was, a, it was quite a beautiful spiritual um, Eunice Monday experience. The world is seen as one. It was a, that's an important word that I'm saying there because it will come out later when you tell me about some of my work when I talk to you about some of my work. But the experience of everything is one. Eunice Monday was this 
central part of that particular psychedelic experience. Anyway, that's... Thank you. And David? Yes. Take us from that time now in Greenwich Village, where you had a very positive experience with tetrahydrocannabinol, known on the street as marijuana, Mary Jane, dope. Um, what was your next experience that you can remember with a uh, mind-altering psychedelic substance? I, uh, I was uh, able to procure, uh, because it was legal to uh, procure it at the time, uh, with a friend of mine, uh, mescaline, pure mescaline, from uh, a company in England. And we, uh, we got the purest form of mescaline uh, through the mail uh, at, uh, in the 1960s, early 1959-60. And um, my experiences uh, then included uh, using mescaline on several occasions, all, all of those occasions uh, paralleled the descriptions that Howard so eloquently uh, uh, gave us a moment ago, a feeling of uh, connectedness to a larger universe, a feeling of profound humility at how insignificant and small I was in the grand scheme of things, a sense of liberation that came as a consequence of that feeling of the largeness of uh, the world and the world being Gaia, uh, just an organism, a oneness, uh, the oneness that uh, Howard just now finished describing. So uh, there was about this experience, which was uh, extraordinarily memorable, even though it was over 60 years ago, vividly implanted in my mind, was um, a great relaxation of my being, which was, which was uh, by and large rather um, hounded by a, a dark and depressive early life, uh, a sense of uh, lightness of spirit, uh, a sense of oneness with the world, a tremendous connection to uh, the interconnectedness of all things living, both botanical uh, as well as animal, uh, and uh, that included all animals, including lower animals and human beings. And um, a sense that uh, when I would occasionally uh, find myself uh, moving into a kind of depressive state, which was not uncommon uh, for me, uh, I could alleviate that state by uh, one use or another of uh, some of these um, consciousness-altering substances, which allowed me to understand the echelons of reality, as though the reality that I had been born into was only one reality among many realities, planes of existence, and that I could alter that plane of existence, alter my mood, uh, and alter uh, my uh, 
my place in the universe and my perceptual world. Uh, so I began uh, to use marijuana uh, modestly, but with some degree of regularity. Uh, mescaline on occasion, because it was harder then to come by. And then uh, I felt uh, safe and capable of uh, exploring other modalities of uh, consciousness raising and consciousness altering uh, substances. So subsequent to that. Let's, let me stop you right there, David, okay. mm-hmm. because we're going to come back to that, to subsequent to that. Sure. But I, I'm going to ask Howard a question now, and then I'm going to come back and ask you the exact same question. Howard, when you took that first LSD trip w- with that resident, uh, psychiatric resident, uh, and had this uh, transformational experience, you were working as a chief resident at the Department of Psychiatry at UC Medical School. How did that experience affect your work with your patients? Um, well, I was about to graduate and enter my own private practice, too. So I think it's important to recognize that during that period of time, I then started to, uh, I, I moved away from the classical psychiatric way of treating people who were seriously disturbed. And instead of uh, just giving them medication, I started doing uh, uh, exploring their um, psychotic experiences as, as being similar to a psychedelic trip that had value to them, that could open them up to a larger worldview than the little worldview that they had before that, uh, before they had their psychotic break. And I used to, I think I wrote at the time that this psychotic break uh, resolve their, if treated correctly, resolve their neurotic issues much more quickly than many years of analysis of psychotherapy. Um, I was very interested in the, in psychosis and treating it without medication, without labeling it as someone being mentally ill, but actually beginning to see it as a spiritual experience. And there were people around the country who were at the same time beginning to see it similarly. Now, uh, Ronald Lang was dealing with it. John Perry was dealing with it. Some people at the NIH were uh, beginning to experiment uh, treating psychotic people without medication. And the acutely psychotic individuals uh, got better as quickly as they did with given medication if you listen to them with an openness and could talk to them about uh, the spiritual experiences that they were having. Anyway, that's kind of a combination of the psychedelic and the psychotherapy. It's interesting that a medicine that you took informed you about ways to treat people who were traditionally treated with a medicine to treat them without a medicine in order to even help them more than they were being helped by the medicine. That's what it seemed like to me at the time, yeah. Did you ever wish, can you remember wishing at the time that you would, that it would be legal, that it would be allowable to give any of those people psychedelic medicines? Or would that be too much of a conflation of two already uh, unusual experiences? Well, uh, I, you got to remember that I was a psychiatrist. I was an MD. I was licensed. I was on the faculty of the university. I was teaching. This was not a thing that I, and it was very illegal. 
to uh, to experiment with psychedelics at that time. So this was not something that I generally spoke about uh, at the time, but it informed my treatment, mm-hmm. my psychotherapy treatment. It was not something that I even think about. And over the years that I practiced, I've never, ever offered a psychedelic medicine to anybody. Although I do see now, more recently, and I'm much less active in my practice, I hardly have a practice at all at the moment. I'm mostly retired. But I do see that people are now beginning to use psychedelics to treat depression. Yes, but let's treat- come to that. Don't okay. let's not let's not get ahead of ourselves. Okay, We're still I'm sorry. that's all right. We're still back in the nineteen uh, fifties and early nineteen sixties, and and uh, and what you're saying to us is that because of your concern with the illegality, you never ever of course, would prescribe it or give it to a patient. But you're also, if I'm hearing you correctly, saying that you didn't really talk to your colleagues very much, if at all, about your own personal experimentation, maybe just a few very close friends or not at all? Um, I, you know, I can't remember the truth of that. I, I'm Fair not enough. sure. I, I probably, given who I am, I probably spoke to my close friends about it but i did certainly was not something that i and i was giving a lot of lectures at that time was speaking about publicly it wasn't until i got involved uh, a few years later with diabetes that i began to speak about the relationship of psychedelics to us uh, to, to psychosis fair enough or the parallel between those two things okay david i said i was going to ask you the same question which is how did those early experiences in the 1950s, early 1960s, going back 60 years, how did they inform and affect, with marijuana and mescaline so far, uh, your practice with patients at that time, if you can remember that? Well, I'm not not quite sure uh, that it did, uh, although in some way my own experience is probably indirectly registered uh, the way in which I was conducting uh, my therapeutic work. I was. Uh, uh, I, I moved away from uh, the psychoanalytic world in my therapy and became uh, one of the first uh, behavior therapists in the United States, and uh, uh, began a practice in uh, behavioral psychotherapy, uh, and uh, directed an institute in Sausalito, which was the first institute of behavior therapy in the states. And uh, who's your partner with that? Who did you work with there in Sausalito? Someone we know. I worked with uh, Arnold Lazarus. That's uh, it. Arnie Lazarus. Right. Yeah. He was uh, an early pioneer in behavior therapy. Came from Africa. Um, David Fisher. uh, We were directing the Institute at the time. Um, Moving away from uh, the traditional uh, kind of diagnostic psychoanalytic approach to uh, people's um, difficulties psychologically uh, and uh, moving into um, work that uh, addressed um, the, the behavioral outcomes of whatever troubled states these individuals were in and alleviating uh, the uh, symptomatology of uh, these difficulties. So in some way, it probably was 
influenced indirectly by uh, the kind of experience I had of trying to be more immediately in the world uh, uh, and moving people more directly into um, a more efficient solution to their problems. But I don't, uh, I don't recall any specific uh, contribution to uh, my work from the, uh, from the experiences I had. It simply uh, altered in a general way the, uh, the being that I was. And so whatever emanated from that being uh, may have indirectly contributed to whatever work I was doing at the time. Like everything. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. right? A basic alteration of your being yes. would, would, would alter a everything. A different way of seeing the world and of being in the world. Mm-hmm. And, of, and of recognizing, um, importantly, re- recognizing planes of consciousness, alterations in which people um, express their being in various planes, in the P-L-A-N-E-S, planes in the world, and, uh, and encouraging people to shift perception, the ways in which they were construing reality, to helping them shift emotion the ways in which they were experiencing the consequences of the reality that they were in. So in some way, uh, I would suppose that I was informed by the understanding that there were many ways in which to locate a a psyche in the existence of that psyche in the world. And I could help people make that shift. And there were some people, I can recall, who were caught up in alcohol, who were alcoholic, if you like that term, I don't particularly like the term, but who were caught up in abusing alcohol with some regularity, who would themselves come to explore, say, marijuana, and see that what they were struggling to do with regard to the alcohol which was to kind of shift gears psychologically to try to medicate themselves away from some degree of anxiety or psychological difficulty in some part was much better done when they tried marijuana. The consequences were negligible on the, on the downside, providing that they used it responsibly and not over overdosed on it. And, uh, there were a number of people, I can vividly recall, a number of people who gave up alcohol in favor of smoking uh, marijuana with some degree of regularity. And uh, it was a, it was a uh, dramatic and uh, constructive shift. It was almost as if you saw back 60 years ago what's happening now in the United States as that yeah. shift is going on. Yeah. Isn't, that, isn't that interesting? Yes. It, it also sounds to me like both of you gentlemen uh, had experiences with these psychedelics in terms of a realization of the oneness of it all, of the wholeness of it all, 
of the Gaia, in your words, the, the, that it's all the, the, the whole planet and everything on it is one big living, living, breathing organism that had to have brought you closer to your patients because there would be less divide. There would be more of a sense of the oneness between you and your patients. Exactly right. Yeah, that's I think exactly. that's exactly right, Richard. Yeah. Exactly right. Yes. Right? So yes. the sense, yes. your sense of empathy must have been deepened greatly, not that you didn't have it to begin with, given the, the, the chosen occupations that you went into, but the sense of empathy and understanding and, and uh, both would be so deepened. Now, uh, Howard, I'm going to come back to you again. Um, you told us about the first experience with the resident with LSD. What can you remember as your next experience after that with a psychedelic substance? Well, I, I, I think it's important that um, you've got to remember, I was very what you call straight at that time. Uh, you know, I, 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 I wore a suit, I wore a tie. I, my, what, what I looked like uh, to other people was very, very important to me. Um, I was beginning uh, to, I was just a young psychiatrist. I was beginning to expand my career. I was afraid that anything I would do, that anyone would know, no one would refer any patients to me anymore. So I, I was pretty low key about my psychedelic use. I think the next time uh, I had taken LSD, I was with my wife. We were in Jamaica. And I spent the entire time, it wasn't a very large dose, caught up in the movement of trees. And just visualizing that, the thing that came from that experience was just the movement of trees and the leaves on the, on the palm trees that were in constant motion, which made me think of that I was in constant motion inside, where all my atoms were in constant motion, that kind of connection which they are but this was not something i was promulgating in the world i really want you to understand that yes i now i mean there are uh, psychedelic substances that if i started all over again or that i deal with friends that i would mention to people but that it was illegal at that time and I was, in, I was i was i was at a young family i was dealing with that part of my life so i did not go around promoting psychedelic substances nor have i ever since Although I'd have feelings, different feelings about uh, ecstasy or MDMA. We'll get to uh, that. Let's wait okay. with that and keep the, okay. keep the listeners in suspense on that one for okay. a while. Okay, I won't tell them. Okay. So I understand what you're saying. I mean, the... the but that's I also what... want you to know that the guy sitting, at least on my left here, David, I met David Geisinger at that period of time when he was running the Behavior Therapy Institute. And I was going around trying to hustle Arnold Lazarus to speak to the staff at the, at the UC, which he did. And that's when I first met Dave Begeisinger. And he was just as straight as I am, as I was. Straighter. <laughs> Straighter. Uh, I didn't actually didn't become friends with him until many years later when we met in Zihuataneo, Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And both of us by that time had grown up a little bit and changed. I think it was many, many years later. Yeah. I, I, I want to underline again and I'll probably keep underlining this, that you both had significant, life-changing, transformational experiences, which you pretty much kept to yourselves. And you certainly didn't talk about these experiences in professional circles or in, in any kind of circle where it might injure your practice 
or your personal lives, correct? Right, right. That's correct, yeah. Right. Yeah. So so that that was a result of the governments having made these substances illegal. And interesting that they chose to make substances illegal, which were very important in your profession, because they went to the seat of consciousness in their effect. Yes, and and uh, and the uh, the illegality uh, was not connected uh, to uh, the severity uh, of uh, problems that would be uh, caused as a result of ingesting these things. They were simply a political decision, uh, as you described earlier, Richard, and uh, one that was uh, oppressive. Uh, to uh, people who were using it benignly uh, and uh, using it responsibly and using it in ways that were constructive. Uh, I have uh, had a lifelong, over 60-year intermittent use of uh, some of these substances, uh, marijuana, uh, which I use to this day on occasion, and uh, find it uh, extremely helpful and constructive in my life. I'm a painter. Uh, it helps uh, focus my uh, work on my painting, uh, opening the doors of perception, as Huxley said, uh, um, enabling uh, work that I ordinarily would have much more difficulty uh, doing to be done. Uh, it uh, it helps me uh, on occasion when I use it uh, to shift emotional gears into some lighter spirited moment in which uh, there is no alteration in my capacity to live my life and to do things uh, intelligently and and well. Uh, so it has been the greatest uh, medicine. Marijuana has been the greatest uh, medicine I have ever ingested in my life. It has been the most constructive single medical uh, uh, work of my life, I would say, in all ways. I have never uh, had in 60 years uh, much deleterious consequence of using it. So before we go further, and I want to go a lot further with where you then went with various experimentation, I want to ask the question, given what you've said so far, what has it been like for you watching people's just, we're going to talk strictly on marijuana for a moment. What has it been like for you, knowing what you know about marijuana personally and deeply as trained, highly trained, deeply experienced, decades of experience, over 50 years of experience each? What has it been like for you watching people's lives ruined for possession of small amounts of marijuana? Yeah, it's well, been uh, terrible. I mean, obviously. Yeah. Let's let Howard go first, David. You despair. Sure. Yeah, sure. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I, didn't mean, I just think Please. it's an awful racial uh, expression of racism on the part of our country. 
because, you know, marijuana was used by the black community quite regularly before the white people ever knew about it. And this was a way of banging on the black people and getting them incarcerated for minor offenses, for drug offenses. You know, start, I don't know who started it, but it was certainly Reagan was doing that. Harry Anslinger started it in 1935, Howard. Started what? He started, Harry Anslinger was the head of the first Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He was appointed that by Andrew Mellon of the Mellon Banking family, who was the Secretary of the Treasury. And Anslinger was married to Mellon's niece, and so he got appointed. And Anslinger was a, a racist zealot who made a campaign. He was the one who started, or was very influential in starting the whole notion that black men were seducing white women using marijuana, that black men were seducing all kinds of people using marijuana. And he, he went on a campaign. Uh, I mean, he, he, one of his most famous acts was uh, handcuffing the jazz singer Billie Holiday to her bed in Bellevue Hospital to make the arrest and handcuffed her to her bed uh, because of her song, Strange Fruit, that supposedly was about her uh, heroin use. Uh, so that's the answer to your question of where's a lot of that started. It started with one, not just one man, but he was the most active man because of his huge position in the federal government. And then he went to the United Nations eventually, and he spread uh, uh, the word uh, of uh, around the world, uh, uh, the word of, of, of being anti-marijuana. And then he went on with anti-other drugs as well. So but let's come back. Uh, David, do you want to make any comments about your personal uh uh, feelings, feelings yes. Yeah, well, I, I, I would echo uh, what Howard said. I think it's been uh, a, a form of uh, a political oppression against, uh, predominantly against uh, people of color uh, who uh, were notably using a good deal of it uh, in the 20s even, uh, although, of course, the history of marijuana goes back centuries, if not millennia. And uh, uh, it was uh, it was uh, strictly a uh, a political ploy and put into that category of drugs that were uh, connecting marijuana to heroin and uh, drugs that were really totally uh, seriously problematic, which in fact it had no place to be. Uh, and uh, it is a it is a, a national tragedy that so many people have been incarcerated, have have lost their lives through incarceration. And that's still ongoing. That's still and, ongoing. And, and it is ongoing. And yes, it is. Less so, but ongoing. Yeah. Uh, and there, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people uh, innocent of any crime other than smoking a little of uh, a little weed. It's actually, in the, it's actually in the millions, David. It's actually in the millions. The, the who are, who are incarcerated in yeah. prisons, both here yeah. and other countries, yeah. And, and around the world, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's come back now to uh, to the uh, uh, talk about experimentation. Uh, after that Jamaica experience, uh, what do you remember next about your experience? Uh, can you bring us to, to another experience, or should we switch um, over to David? 
another early experience with another uh, early yeah yes another one after the jamaica experience do you remember when you did lsd again or mescaline or any i think i i think uh i developed i think these experiences were so huge for me i did mescaline uh once or twice in the 60s and early 70s but these experiences were so huge for me that i approached them with a great deal of awe and fear actually um it's not just that i mean they to lose oneself one's boundaries is a frightening experience for me and um even though the positive comes out through it if you can stick with it or you're with someone who can help you understand what's going on it is an awesome frightening experience so i don't think that i um used uh marijuana uh, particularly marijuana is another story but I don't think I used uh, the big psychedelics frequently over the ensuing years until about maybe in my 60s when I began to experiment with uh, using MDMA. Okay, so that would take us to about the year 2000, roughly. <laughs> so we're going to jump forward. Let's wait with that move on the year 2000 with MDMA. The Come main back point to- I want to say, it was not yes. a regular part of my life, but it was a regular part of the, of the way in which I approached my professional life because it was during those years that I began to uh, speak publicly, talk about the positive aspects of psychotic experiences. And the uh, and speak against the use of medication, labeling, and suppression of those experiences. Now, that's, that's I important. I have some reservations about that too, which is a more complicated thing. But just let me say that the first psychedelic experience, and maybe the one afterwards, and I can't remember the third. Maybe I've so many years ago influenced my profession, my professional life profoundly. And, be, and any little notoriety I got came from the use of uh, uh, the treatment, the non-hospital treatment of acute psychosis mm-hmm. without medication. Mm-hmm. And that's my little five minutes of fame that I had some time in this then back then came from that. Well, for those who can't remember Diabasis House, it was a, it was an important contribution. Right, so it was. Uh, David. Take us now uh, after mescaline. Do you recall your first experience with um, LSD, lysergic acid, diethylamide? Uh, I uh, I don't remember the first of my uh, many experiences with LSD. Uh, the experiences uh, that I did have handful uh with lsd with uh psilocybin mushrooms uh with other mind-altering chemicals were duplicative in some way of my uh early experiences with uh mescaline a sense of oneness with the universe uh a sense of uh, the restoration of that viewpoint or that echelon of reality, um, a sense of uh, awe, uh, and um, as Howard pointed out, the uh, the experiences were uh, very demanding. Uh, 
to uh, relaxing the boundary between myself and the world, um, uh, a loss of uh, control, a loss of ego, and uh, accompanying that, especially in the very earliest instances, um, a kind of fear that I would not be able to retrieve myself and that at the end of this experience, I would be lost in the universe uh-huh. and not be able to uh, be the person I was, function, uh, uh, or, uh, yeah, function any longer. But of course, uh, with each passing experience, I was disconfirmed of that fear. And right, you uh, I learned you uh, back to yourself. Yes, I could come back to myself. And I learned uh, to release, to let it go, to flow with whatever the experiences was, with uh, a kind of security that I could just enter that altered world, a wonderful world full of revelation and wonder, and be sure that I would find myself within a, a, a relatively short time. So I, I learned how not to oppose the loss of ego. I learned how not to oppose uh, uh, being uh, relaxed into boundarylessness. Uh, I learned how to relinquish control. And because I was, like Howard said he was, a person who... Uh, had a great deal of control and who needed a great deal of control because I was controlling a bunch of stuff inside me uh, that was uh, sometimes dark and scary and anxiety producing. I I think it was uh, a therapeutic liberation uh, to my own um, psychology, the psychology that it was a consequence of my early life, which was, as I said, a rather dark one. And uh, I think it was a a source of great personal healing for me. I became a better person, a more loving person, a less judgmental person. I was highly judgmental in my early years, opinionated, arrogant, judgmental. I hope that uh, I've relaxed some of that. Oh, yes, you have. I can attest to that. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I, I mean, I knew that you had remarkably changed by the time I met you in Zihuataneo. I don't know how long ago after that first meeting. <laughs> absolutely been transformed. You actually looked physically different. Yeah, I think you it was, was more relaxed in the way you were moving through the world. Yeah, I think it was a great personal help to me. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, I find I find it interesting to I saw Howard shaking his head when you were talking about uh, the fear of not being able to come back to who you were and how you managed that over time, and I um, have wondered about that about what that fear is in each of us, in that how is it that we're not able to trust that if we didn't come back to who we were, 
we might not come back to somebody else who was equally interesting and loving and a decent person. Actually, that's what got me over my anxiety in my first LSD experience. This man who's no longer alive, Sheila Salaznik, I was a physician. Um, when I said to him, I was afraid I'd never be able to get back, he said, this is so bad. Uh-huh. And David and laughed about the same question. Yes. And so? Is this so bad? And it wasn't that bad. It was just that I was afraid <laughs> I wasn't there. But I think we're talking about something that's very critical because it is a common denominator across a a good-sized doses of uh, psychedelic medicine that there is a fear of losing oneself and uh, that you both talked about and a a concern that we will not come back to who we were rather than an optimism about finding a whole new person that'll be even more interesting or more fun or more enjoyable. Easier said than done. Easier said than done. Easier said than done. Yes. I think it's important to uh, emphasize context. I think uh, we uh, we're failing uh, to emphasize context here. And I'd like to spend a moment on context. Uh, You know, I, I was, uh, I was a, a practicing uh, psychotherapist and psychologist. I had uh, supportive friendships uh, who uh, themselves had gone through some of these experiences. I was better prepared than uh, most lay people to entertain the possibility of trying some of these substances on my own, decontextualized from some helper somebody outside of me who would guide me through these experiences. But there are people who uh, have, uh, not that many, I think, but people who have tried some of these uh, strong mind-altering substances uh, without the proper context and who uh, have uh, unpleasant and negative experiences uh, and uh, it doesn't help them very much. So. I think it's an important thing not to uh, simply um, uh, promulgate uh, the use of these uh, uh, very dramatic uh, medicines uh, without uh, thinking very carefully about uh, how, when, and with whom uh, you are uh, going to try the experiment. Very well said, David. And and what we've come to over the years, and I know you're both aware of this, is that the the in red underlining of set and setting and the use of a guide, because uh, with the use of a guide, or in your case, uh, Howard, it was a resident, um, the lack of the loss of control, uh, which can lead to what's called the bad trip, actually becomes a good trip. Because what we're afraid of is the dark stuff, David, that you talked about from your past, coming out either too fast or becoming overwhelming, and we don't know what the heck to do with it. Yes. But on the other hand, if the psychedelic medicine releases that dark stuff that we've kept trapped, and there's someone there to help us master it and deal with it, we then turn that bad into a good trip because right. we speed up the process of looking at all that old junk. 
Rather that's what than, I meant when I said it was faster than a couple of years of psychotherapy. Exactly. We may we could take years. I've had patients tell me they went through one, and it, it, it might have taken years to get to the material, if ever, whereas they got to it with one uh, psychedelic experience. But again, as you're pointing out, David, uh, in an appropriate setting, uh, you know, with uh, the uh, appropriate person to take you through it. This isn't, uh, you know, a ride in Coney Island. Yeah. At least for those of us who want to use it responsibly, it's not a, a ride in Coney Island. But rides yeah. in Coney Island are fun also. As well. That's a whole different topic, which is recreational, <laughs> uh, recreational I, I, use. I come from Coney Island, so I know it's not a ride in Coney Island. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I used it, of course. Uh, Howard, I'm going to now fast forward to around the year 2000, when you were introduced to uh, MDMA, known on the street as ecstasy. Yes, I don't remember how I um, got, I think, um, I'm not exactly sure how I got a hold of my first dose of it, but I took it with my wife. And... um, it was one of the most beautiful, loving experiences that I've ever had in my life. It, no, I, I would say it was it, it was a extraordinarily beautiful, loving experience, bigger than anything I had before, even when I had first fallen in love with her. Uh, she had the same experience at the same time. And we realized that it was so beautiful that we didn't want to uh, ruin the experience by using it too frequently. Um because we, we, you become habituated to the experience, I guess. So we would uh, actually limit ourselves to doing it about once or twice a year over the next many years. And, um, and like all, all other experience, the first one is the best uh, or the worst. Um, and, but the repetitive experiences brought us close to that. And uh, we would go away for a weekend, take some ecstasy, and really enjoy each other deeply and feeling in love and feeling the, the wondrous sensation of whatever it is to feel madly in love. Now, I think the actual love experience is probably a similar chemical experience in the brain. You know, a washing of the brain with serotonin, um, which is the creates that kind of feeling that people have. But I say, I want to take this a little bit one step further because of my um, history of, uh, we've skipped over the fact that I, the diabetes, which was treating very psychotic people without medication, I became, uh, people heard about that, and then they wanted me to come as a consultant to some music festivals or psychedelic festivals. So I began, I began to go, to, I, I first started out by going to Boom, which is a totally psychedelic festival in Europe every other year held in Portugal, where people come for psychedelics. The government, uh, contrary to the United States government, uh, encourages a responsible use of psychedelics. There's no criminal activity. The government has, at the concert or at the the festival, they have testing stations where you could test your drugs to see how pure they were. and then they had people like me that they hired from the United States who uh, were able to be, I was a consultant to 
with peer groups that were there to help people through bad experiences because some people did have bad experiences and got frightened. So there was a lot of combinations of odd drugs floating around, including LSD, ecstasy, and many other kind of drugs um, that were, you know, that were around at the time and tested for purity because they were there on the site. So we did have some bad trips, but very few. There were thousands of people there. Maybe there were 29, 30 bad trips, and we had a group of people who were willing to help people through that rather than crush it or rather than give them medication and say they were crazy. What was the what was the predominant uh, psychedelic substance that people were using uh, at those uh, events, Howard? Uh, LSD, LSD primarily, and um, and ecstasy. I think. Do you have any idea of the of the uh, dosage, the average dose that they were using? No, but there were big doses floating. There were big doses. And the and the other thing that I learned there, and here I was a really old guy now, because uh, I'm not talking about. It wasn't 2000. It was more maybe five, six years ago. Uh, the other thing I learned there was a combination. Wait a second, the people. That's right. Anyway, there. Excuse me. The people that um, were using a combination of LSD and MDMA, mm-hmm. uh, which was a wonderful experience. They called it candy. Candy. Uh, Mm-hmm. Howard, I'm going to switch over to David now and let yeah. you get settled there. You've got some uh, noise in the background. I think you have guests. So why don't you put your, yeah, stay on mute and let's move over to David. David? Yes. Oh, you can hear me. That's great. Um, what can you tell me about when you were first introduced to the next one? What would be the next one for you? Well, uh, I've, you uh, I've used... Uh, the next one, I suppose, was MDMA. Like Howard said, I've had a number of experiences with MDMA, and uh, uh, the uh, the particular nature of MDMA uh, seems uh, always to open up uh, people's loving hearts. Uh, it's uh, um, the love drug of some sort. It opens up people's affiliative connectedness and the uh, sweetness of uh, of uh, of um, relationships. Um, so I've had that a number of times with very pleasant, positive experiences. I haven't used that for a very long period of time. And um, what else? Uh, well, there have been a number of other uh, experiences, but basically... Uh, the experiences that I've had have uh, now become duplicative. I think I'm reasonably educated as to where I'm going to be uh, going when I take any of these things. And uh, I'm more and more disinclined to use uh, psychedelics of any of any sort other than uh, marijuana uh, for the remainder of my days, I suppose. I don't that was my next question, David, and to you too as well, Howard. Which can is, you hear me now? Yes, I- we can. We can hear you, Howard. It's great. Sorry about that. No, no problem. Um, my next question is to both of you. Once you've had a certain amount of experience uh, and these very uh, seminal experiences, have you done the experience? Is it, or is there always more to learn? 
I mean, of course, there's always more to learn in life, but I mean, from this particular medicine, I mean, in other words, does it become one duplicating another, as David says, pretty much? What are your thoughts on that? Howard, what do you think? Well, I think there's a, I think certainly think there's tachyphylaxis. Uh, the more you use something, the less it becomes, the less it works, I think. Particularly mm-hmm. ecstasy, I'm talking about MDMA. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, at this point, I would be, I haven't had MDMA for a couple of years, but I think it, I could take it and it might be okay, but it won't be the big experience that I had the first time. You might be uh, interested, both of you, in listening to uh, my interview last week with a New York psychoanalyst, Charlie Weninger, who's got a new book out, Listening to Ecstasy. He and his wife have used ecstasy uh, 65 times or more, and he says they continue to uh, get more and more out of it, and they uh, lesser doses are required by far, uh, but they continue to process their relationship and and uh, and get deeper and deeper, and that's why he wrote the book. It's a book pretty much about his personal experiences with his wife over a period of years. And the other thing, as you get older, you know, it takes it, it, uh, ecstasy. And LSD is different. Uh, LSD, while a bigger experience, doesn't knock you out the same way that ecstasy does the next day. So you have to, in order to take ecstasy now, I'd have to put out two days of my schedule, one day for for the experience and another day to rest mm-hmm. yeah. because it's yeah. a big experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas interest, get- interestingly enough, LSD itself is a larger experience, but does not have that next day uh, fatigue exactly. effect. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Important to note. Important to note. Yeah. So. And the mixture. I, I, I want to uh, promulgate uh, tout the mixture. Please tell us about the mixture. Of having, let's say, 100 mics of LSD and uh, maybe 100 milligrams of uh, MDMA, it's a beautiful mixture because you get uh, the softening of the LSD experience, which can sometimes be so overwhelmingly uh, harsh as you begin to lose your uh, ego or lose the boundary between you and the world. And the MDMA, which is a connecting experience. So you get together with the world with the MDMA while you've lost it a little bit on the LSD. I'm mm-hmm. not using the right metaphors. I think you can get that uh, that connection in a number of ways. I, I, I certainly get it with marijuana. Well, I haven't spoken about my marijuana use, as you know. Uh, you know me. I, I, am I a know you use it. Yeah, I'm a regular user of marijuana now. I like it. Uh, I like the experience. Um, it's a very mild experience. It, it adds to a kind of depth to my life. Uh, it's a relaxant. Uh, it doesn't have the kind, again, it has a certain tachyphylaxis. The more you use it, the less, the less it really affects the, the higher uh, possibilities of it. But I, it's a nice, I'd rather have a toke of marijuana than a martini, let's put it that way. What means of administration do you use for marijuana, Howard? Uh, I eat it, 10 milligrams. It comes now in, you can buy it in these little um, capsules, uh, 10 milligram size. Mm-hmm. Uh, I occasionally smoke it. I smoke it probably because it's easier to get high when you smoke it. You have to wait and it's less controlled when you eat it. But either way, I'll, uh, 
if I don't want to smoke because I'm coughing, uh, I use a vape. I don't, you know, I use vape oil. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a very interesting situation with regard to administration of marijuana because we can be more precise with the edibles and yet they have different effects based on what you eat and what you've drunk and how long it takes and so on. But yet you can be more precise with the dosage, whereas with smoking, you can be much less precise with the dosage, but you have a much more uh, uh, easy to understand uh, on take. Right. Well, I, I don't have any problem with the dosage when I'm smoking, which is what I prefer. Oh, tell and us. I, I prefer to uh, uh, to smoke the uh, the botanical itself rather than uh, a vape, although I've used both. And uh, I I will take a toke or two at the most and get exactly what I want out of it, uh, which is sometimes just uh, a relaxedness or a focus on a job that it would be, uh, for instance, tedious. If I have to clean out the garage, I'd much rather clean it out after I've had a couple of tokes than without <laughs> that. And I'll get better. And I'll get better at it when I do it that way. By the way, gentlemen, it's taken uh, how many years? It's taken uh, for marijuana now to be illegal in California, to many states in the union, uh, the United States. Uh, I think Congress just passed a bill, though we're not expecting it to make it through the Senate yet. But eventually, we know that marijuana will be nationally legal, both recreational and medicinal. And the same thing will happen eventually with MDMA and LSD. Uh, a couple of comments from each of you, please, on how you see the use of LSD, MDMA, uh, mushrooms, and so on in psychotherapy. Well, I think there's a growing body of literature uh, uh, now that uh, uh, it's possible to conduct studies uh, on these medications. Uh, there's a growing body of literature that suggests that uh, many of these medications are more efficacious, uh, less costly in terms of uh, side effects and money on depression, psychosis, anxiety syndromes, and the like. And uh, with each passing month, there's more and more evidence that with guided use, uh, of some of these uh, chemicals, uh, relief for problems that have formerly been relatively therapeutically insurmountable are beginning to become possible. So I'm looking forward to the uh, continued development and refinement of uh, these medications and uh, techniques for using them to alleviate a wide range of uh, serious psychological dilemmas. Well, you know, they're studying that at the, at back east at the NIH. Now the use of uh, psilocybin, purified psilocybin, in, um, in the fear of death of people who are terminally ill mm -hmm. and experience fear of death. Psilocybin seems to be very helpful. 
They've studied objectively. I don't know how you study this objectively, but you and I were talking about these awesome experiences, the spiritual experiences. They've shown that now objectively on the psilocybin. Uh, they've been... Uh, yeah, they use the, the use of ketamine against uh, oh, depression. Oh, ketamine now. That's ketamine what we discussed, ketamine. Ketamine, really important. Right. Ketamine is an important drug that's being studied and used um, to treat depression successfully, very rapidly. Do either, do either of you want to comment on uh, personal use of uh, ketamine? Yeah, it was a, the yeah. first time um, for me, it was a psychedelic experience, one that I recognized. And uh, I, it was easy. Uh, uh, it didn't take uh, the thing I liked about it was twenty minutes instead of uh, yeah. to twelve hours. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you get you didn't have to spend your whole day on it. You took it, um, and twenty minutes later, you were back on the ground again, which and could function. So that was good. Uh, I didn't use it uh, therapeutically. I wasn't depressed. I used it just for the stimulus of the, of the psychedelic. But it wasn't, I, I, as David said. I like the way you said that. There wasn't any new information coming in. It was, oh, yeah, I've been here before, and this is nice, but th- I don't know if I want to spend my day this way. I have other things. I want to play the piano. I want to read a book. <laughs> I want to go for a hike out in nature. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, I, I, w- I want to thank you both very much for having, uh, I don't. I would say courage, but you're both going to say it didn't take a lot of courage because of your age, probably. But I do want to thank you both very much for your willingness to be founding members of this uh, of this group that I'm forming, uh, who are psychedelic elders, confessions of psychedelic elders, because I really think it's important what you're doing. It's very important that uh, people that you two and people like yourselves and I intend to continue and create a very long series and hopefully publish books on this so that the public becomes aware that straight citizens, good citizens, prominent citizens of these United States have been experimenting with these medicines for decades, have learned from them, have done well with them, have had life-changing in a positive way experience, and they are not the devil in disguise as the government would have us believe. And moreover... Moreover, I would say that there have been major contributions made to science, to art, to culture, to every sphere of human endeavor that would not possibly have been made without the quiet assistance of the use of these medications by the people who have created these things. I think of Carl Sagan here. Carl Sagan, great, great works of, of uh, visual art, great orchestral pieces, great jazz, of course, great jazz, which is really where it started in the, in the art community, and major scientific contributions, uh, the human genome. Right. Yes. Great. So, uh, so let's, not, uh, let's not leave out the contributory effects of the use of these things without the public's being aware of them. And 
And then we haven't really discussed the kind of ongoing low dose um, microdosing of LSD or psilocybin, which people are using very effectively. I have not I experienced a little bit of it, but not in the regular way of every three days. Yeah. That uh, younger people now are beginning to experiment with. And it, that seems to enhance their focus, attention, lovingness at work. I think it's being used a lot in Silicon Valley. Uh, the low dose. Um, I've I've interviewed people, uh, including Paul Austin, uh, who started a whole program around microdosing called the Third Wave, uh, who used it uh, every third day, as per uh, 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 Albert Hoffman's uh, and uh, Jim Fadiman's uh, protocol, and made life changing, life changing momentum as a result of uh, of of microdosing. And of course, there's Ayelet Waldman's book, A Really Good Day, where she talked about recovery from 20 years of bipolar. And it's, I think it's moving around the world. I just read recently, actually in preparing for this interview, that Albert Hoffman, the, the discoverer of LSD, took microdose of LSD every single day for the last 20 years of his life and lived to 102. Yeah. Every single day. I've got to research that more to make sure that that's accurate. But uh, three different sources indicate that he did that, which I find really, really fascinating. Thank you for bringing this up, the the, uh, microdosing at the end. Uh, It it is something that's happening, uh, no question. Thank you both very much for being here today. I really appreciate it. And, uh, And thank you all for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And a special thanks to my producer, Charlie Dice, who makes this broadcast possible. Uh, the preceding program was brought to you by Wilbur Hot Springs and Thanksgiving Coffee. You know, the autumn season is magnificent at Wilbur, and it would be even more magnificent if Wilbur was off was open. But unfortunately, because of uh, the COVID pandemic, Wilbur is closed for a few weeks. So keep in touch so that you can come back during the new year. Uh, here on our little farm, we call it the J&R Farm, stands for Jolie and Richard, in Fort Bragg, California, we're producing some of the world's best organic eggs. In fact, our J&R Farm eggs are so excellent that we're able to trade them for the world's best gourmet coffee made by the Thanksgiving Coffee Company. The founder of Thanksgiving Coffee, Paul Katzif, also from Brooklyn, by the way, gentlemen, is a trained social worker and political activist who has improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world. Yeah, he gets them some of the money that is uh, made from the coffee. As an expression of appreciation and support for mind, body, health, and politics, Paul has created three special mind, body, health, and politics coffee blends. Paul then doubles down and donates 20% of the internet sales of these three special mind, body, health, and politics coffee blends to the COVID Response Network. That's the COVID Response Network, a nonprofit 501c3 protecting citizens from COVID. Check out the COVID Response Network on the internet. And go to Thanksgiving Coffee, the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website, and buy mind, body, health, and politics coffee. Support the truth-telling broadcast, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and support the COVID 
Response Network. Do it now. And please join me next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.